This is episode number 315 with Monica Berg. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? If you want to listen to my episodes one day earlier than they are released anywhere else, you have to download the app Himalaya and follow my show. Himalaya is free, super easy to use, and has every podcast you can think of. I love that you can leave comments under each episode and even create episode playlists. Make sure you check it out today. Monica is a change junkie, and she wants to challenge the way that you think about everything. In her first book, Fear is Not an Option, she challenged readers to eradicate fear from their lives. And in her latest book, Rethink Love, she uses years of personal experience, teaching and counseling to eradicate false belief systems around love and relationships. She is the Chief Communications Officer of the Kabbalah Center, And during her teen years, she developed an eating disorder that grew into a five-year battle with anorexia and body dysmorphia. With her recovery came a better understanding of the disease and a passion to help others. However, it wasn't until her second child was born that she had to reevaluate her own belief system. Her son, Joshua, was diagnosed with Down syndrome shortly after his birth, which was life-changing for Monica and her family. The diagnosis led to Monica's manifesto. In change, there's great power. When she's not writing, lecturing, or working with students at the center, she contributes her time and voice to Habitat for Humanity and Something for Kelly. While she is passionate about helping all people feel empowered, she is especially committed to organizations that support women, particularly those with a mission focused on overcoming eating disorders. This episode is really powerful for anyone who has struggled with an eating disorder or body dysmorphia. This episode is for you. We chat about how she discovered her life purpose, how she transformed her pain to serve others, her inspiring journey of overcoming an eating disorder and learning to love herself again, How to teach our children to be fearless and love themselves. This is a must listen for every parent or soon to be parent out there. We also talk about how to stop white knuckling your way through life, releasing the need to control and allowing space for flexibility and why this is so important. We also talk about why our uncertainty and discomfort can be a gateway to greatness, the hidden language of your emotions and what they reveal about your personal growth how to nurture and improve your relationships, her tried and true strategies for a successful relationship that can thrive through anything. We also talk about what she's working on within herself at the moment, plus so much more. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 315. 
But before we dive into this juicy conversation, I want to read the review of the week. And this week, it's a five-star review from Cassie titled, Absolutely Love, Life Changing. And Cassie says, I have just begun my podcast journey and I wish I had gotten to them sooner. Being forced to a standstill during this period of change in the world, I'm grateful to have created a daily habit of tuning into Melissa's show every morning. The way she interviews guests is so encouraging and filled with so much passion. Thank you so much for empowering me to find myself again. Cassie, you are so welcome. Thank you for this beautiful review. And I want to send you a little thank you gift. I want to send you my wildly wealthy guided meditation. This is for you, Cassie, and anyone who leaves me a review on iTunes. All you have to do is send me a screenshot of the review to hello at melissaambrosini.com and I will send you my wildly wealthy guided meditation. And if you want to get your hands on my Bursting with Love guided meditation, you can leave a review on Amazon for Mastering Your Mean Girl or Open Wide or both. And again, email me a screenshot of your review and I'll send that over. And now without further ado, let's bring on the super inspiring Monica Bird. Before we jump into this juicy conversation, I need to apologize for my audio quality. My microphone was not selected when I was recording this, so I do apologize and I hope your ears will forgive me. It's such a great conversation. I had to post it. So please enjoy. Welcome, Monica. I'm so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? I had a bowl of berries. (laughs) But my first thing I have every morning is the perfect cup of coffee. It's like what I look forward to more than anything. So I have that and then I work out and then I have breakfast after. Oh, lovely. Now, can you tell us about your story? Like, how did you get to where you are today? How did this all unfold for you? Tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are today doing the work that you now do. It's interesting because I think that I was always destined to do what I'm doing now. And I think it came from this feeling that I had when I was little. I don't know about you, but I have very specific detailed memories from age three, four. I mean, vivid memories of thoughts that I had, of games I played, like tea parties with God. I mean, very clear. And I remember how I felt. I also remember feeling like I didn't belong. Like I come from a very loving home. My parents love me. You know, that's never been an issue, but I always felt like I wasn't supposed to be like, I almost landed from outer space. And more than that, there were no answers to any questions that I started to have as I grew up. And a lot of those questions created a lot of fear for me, not having the answers, like what's our purpose and really, you know, what makes you happy? Because I remember looking around at all the adults around me. My father was very wealthy. And then I saw him lose everything. And then I watched him be jobless for a while. My mom went to work and I saw how that destroyed him. And he just kept trying to recreate what he had created. Like that was the purpose of his entire life. And he wasn't able to really enjoy his children or the present. And I just remember like I would take mental notes of all of this. And then I finally at age 17, I came across the wisdom of Kabbalah which really did give me the answers of 
so many, all questions, why we're here, what my purpose is. And I discovered that. And that was the fuel for my life's work, which is really because I saw much pain, so much pain in my own home, so much yearning and longing that I really made it my life's mission to first make sure that I derive purpose and meaning from every challenge and every experience that happens in my life and then help other people create that for themselves. They do not believe in suffering. I do not believe in extended pain. I believe that all of those feelings that we have in that area are to help us to transform and grow to reveal more beautiful aspect of us. I think that's so beautiful. What is the Kabbalah? Because I know you just touched on that, but some people might be like, what is she talking about? What is that? So can you explain a little bit about what Kabbalah is? It's an ancient wisdom that teaches the complexities of the physical realm that we live in and the upper world. And it's how you're able to direct your consciousness and to expand your consciousness and see things and learn them in a different way. And it's all about doing work and using tools so that we leave this world a more elevated state than how we came into it. Oh, I love that. Okay. What are some of the principles? How long has it been around? For thousands and thousands of years. It is the first spirituality. I mean, there's many spiritualities and truth is truth. And you're going to find that crossover. But there's a book called the Zohar, which is where all the teachings come from. And it really is like, I don't know about you, but again, I was looking for a manual to life. You know, I wanted a rule book of what will give you a happy, fulfilled, purposeful existence. And all in this wisdom, it's all there. So it's different tools like how to be proactive instead of reactive in situations, right? There's a process that you go through and different things you can do in the moment to stop the reactivity of behavior. It's about transformative sharing. For instance, a person can share if they're a billionaire to give a million dollars to charity is very nice. It's very generous, but it's not a kind of change or sharing that's going to create some internal change in them, right? For a billionaire to go and clean the toilets is going to create more of a change for them, spiritually speaking, than to give them money, right? So it's about doing things that are difficult for you to be kind when you really don't want to be kind, especially. And more than anything, it's the idea of taking this desire that we all have, the desire to receive for the self alone, and to create that into the desire to receive for the sake of sharing. So it's great to have goals. It's great to be ambitious. But if it's just for yourself alone, if it's just to see your name on a building or that your ego will feel good about how much money you've made or whatever it is on your list, it's only going to give you so much happiness. But if you really want to have meaning and purpose, then you want to take that and then share it with the world as well. So I think in a nutshell, that's really the main premise. Yeah, beautiful. I love that. And it's interesting because, you know, we're born into this world and we don't really get a manual for life. And our teachings and our schooling is from our parents. Usually that's where we learn the most. And sometimes that is amazing. And sometimes maybe not. So you spoke a little bit about there was a lot of trauma in your household. And you speak a lot about your eating disorder. So I want to talk about this because I know that there's a lot of women out there and men too that struggle with this. What do you believe was at the root of your eating disorder? Like what was at the root of it? Well, I think it was a need for control. At that time in my life, I felt like everything was out of control and I was spiraling. And again, I didn't have direction. But I think that where that need for control really came from was 
this belief system that I had that I was unlovable, that inherently I wasn't worthy of good things, of happiness, of unconditional love, of fulfillment. And really, I mean, for a person to starve themselves to death nearly, you really don't have a lot of self-love, right? And I started to think about that a lot. And I teach about this a lot because we all come into the world loving ourselves as children. I mean, my youngest is six, you know, she loves to laugh and to play and be whimsical and is not ashamed to share any idea or thought that she has. They feel, you know, as a child, if you look back at your own child, you, you really just are excited about discovering new things. And then somewhere along the line, we learn to not love ourselves. But the good news is a thought is just a thought and it can be changed. So you can learn to love yourself again. So that was, I'm so happy that happened because it put into sharp focus what I thought of myself and what I thought I deserved. And I guess if I had never had the disorder, I think that I wouldn't have made great choices for myself because I would have stayed in this existence of kind of just surviving like most people do. Mm, What would you say to someone that might be dealing with an eating disorder or body dysmorphia right now? So I don't love labels because then you need to have all the things that come along with that label, whatever the disease is, you need to have every symptom then. But I think that a lot of people struggle with this. And I think that even with body dysmorphia, it's still something for me to really see what I look like. I need to see it in a photograph. If I look in a mirror, I know it's distorted. It's just, and it's, I love myself and I feel really good about myself. It's just that there's something that I, I, I never got back in terms of how I'm able to see. But I think that to know that this disorder is a fact, it's not the cause. So I would look at it as I look at all challenges as an opportunity for each person to go and say, okay, what are the belief systems that I have that are negative and that are stopping me, not just from my relationship with food, but it's limiting in every area because it's body, mind, and spirit. If somebody feels so badly about taking care of themselves and feeding themselves and nurturing themselves, they're not going to be able to also be successful in business or in relationships or anywhere else because it all starts with the relationship you have with yourself. Mm, Absolutely. What was the first thing that you kind of did when you realized that you had low self-love? Like when you realized that, what were the first steps that you did to overcome it, to move forward? Did you have someone that supported you or how did you like that dark, dark point, the rock bottom point, like that first initial like step to get out of it? can sometimes feel like the biggest. So what did you do? Did you read something? Did you have a teacher or or someone to help you? Well, with anorexia, there's a lot of shame because of course you feel bad about doing this to yourself in essence, even though it's out of your control. There is a lot of isolation and loneliness and a lot of denial. So I think those were all the things that I felt first. And at the time, You know, of course, Karen Carpenter, I remember, was very known for dying from anorexia. And I used to love her music. It was always so sad, though, right? So when it happened to me, I mean, I was always small. I've never been more than a size four, except, of course, with my pregnancies. And But it was never from a need of like, oh, I need to lose weight. Again, it was that I don't feel in control and and that scares me. So I'm going to control the one thing I can, which is what I'm putting into my body. But I remember the day that I finally saw, and I call it the gift of sight. And I woke up one morning and I did my daily pinch test, which is basically you take your thumb and your forefinger and you pinch your waist. And basically it's just skin, right? But in my perception of the time, I could just, it was like a chunk of fat, you know? But that morning, for whatever reason, I actually saw what I looked like for the first time in years. And 
I was horrified. I was terrified. All of a sudden I started screaming, oh my God. I, I could not believe the skeletal version of me staring back at me because that's not what I had seen. How old were you at this time? I was 19. Wow. And my mom, you know, bless her. You know, I understand now as a mother, how scared she must've been. She thought I was, my heart was going to give out at any moment. She comes running in. And I just remember holding on to her for dear life. Like I just couldn't believe what I had done. And so from that day on, I knew I needed help. I knew I had a problem and I knew that whatever lie I saw, I couldn't take it seriously because it, it went away again. The next day I looked in the mirror and I saw the fat version I had thought I had seen, but I knew it wasn't real. So that's the first thing is to be able to at least be honest with yourself. And even if you know you're not equipped to overcome it right away or to do something about it, it's the first step is the awareness. And then I started to journal. I saw, and I I met with a therapist for a short while and I feel like therapy is good. I mean, this might be a little bit not accepted. I think therapy is good for a short period of time. I think it's a good opportunity to be able to speak to somebody and hear your thoughts and be able to access them in a way that you wouldn't before. They prompt you with good questions. And if they're a really good therapist, they're really going to have you do the work for the self-discovery. So that was the beginning of the journey for me. And I would journal and I would write positive affirmations, even though I didn't believe them at the time, until I started to say, okay, I'm changing my belief system now. And I did. And honestly, I don't even, I don't, I wouldn't even recognize Monica from 17, 18, 19. I mean, she doesn't, she's not even here anymore. I'm such a different person. I was such a people pleaser. I had so much shame, guilt, self-doubt and insecurity. And I'm just, I'm the opposite now, but that was the work. And that's why in my books, I've written that because everything that I write, I've lived and I've done Because if not, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't offer it. Right. I would feel like a fraud. Mm, Totally. How have you made sure that, because you've got three children or Four, four children. Oh my gosh. How have you made sure that you haven't passed those beliefs or, you know, that teaching onto them? Like, how have you consciously made sure that you haven't? Do you know what I mean? I do. And I love, I really love this question because, you know, what I've discovered with my studying and research in anorexia in subsequent years is that it is genetic and there's triggers. So it's an environment, it's your family dynamic. I mean, it's it's a lot of things that kind of trigger that. I lived in Beverly Hills. I went to Beverly Hills High School. My father had lost all his money. There were a lot of triggers for me. I'm also the middle child. I'm very type A, for perfectionist Virgo. So it, I mean, I could see how that it was a perfect recipe. I have two daughters and two sons. And it's something that I really gave a lot of thought to because I am a very clean eater. I still, you know, but that's just what works for me, but I always wanted to make sure that I was making good examples for them. And in my book, at the end of Fears on an Option, I talk about seven things I want my daughters to know. And it's what I finally learned for myself of how to be a fearless woman, really fearless. And part of that was to know that your body is part of your expression. You know, I dance every day. They see me dancing every day. They see that I'm confident, I'm happy, I'm comfortable. Love all of you, all parts of you. Never be ashamed of your passions. So I think it was I try to instill that strength in them of all the things that were at the root of the disorder. And I think that the environment that we're raising them in, I know, is very different than the one I grew up in. But it's interesting because I can see now, even in my children and in my aunts and my grandmother, I can see who has the gene because it's behavior I always recognized and I was a little uncomfortable by, but they never, nobody, I mean, I'm 
I go all the way with everything. So I took this all the way. None of them did, but I could see where the unhealthy patterns were for sure. Why do you think we control so much? You know, a lot of people talk about being recovering control freaks. Why do we try and control so much? I think it comes from what our biggest fear is. I mean, we can assign it to many different things, but ultimately what everybody fears is the same. And that's the fear of the unknown. And we foolishly think that, you know, as long as I'm in control, then I can make sure that nothing happens according to what I don't want, right? Everything's going to go according to plan, which is the biggest farce of all. I mean, we wake up in the morning, you really don't know how your day is going to unfold, right? We think we do, and we have a plan. And then when the plan doesn't go away, we get very upset. The people that are really much more stuck in the outcome and they're not flexible and it has to go according to plan are really going to be more controlling. Those that are able to have a different perspective and say, okay, I trust the process of life, you know, I'm flexible. And that, again, that is something everybody can become, but it's something that you have to work at. When you live like that, then your need for control is less and less because you know it's an illusion. I was very much in the other box early in life. I, you know, liked structure, routine, control, and now I'm completely the other way. It's equal parts, goals, desires, going after them, but then when they don't happen, be flexible and say, okay, what else is an option here? How did you let go of control? Like, what are some of the things that you did to release that grip and be more flexible? I know children definitely force you to let go of control, but are there any strategies or anything that you did to really release your grip? Well, it's interesting because I call myself a change junkie. And that journey was an interesting one because again, I think that like all of us, when I came into the world, well, children are okay, but then at some point we don't like change because usually our first experience with change is an unwelcome one, right? Divorced parents, you know, you have to live in two homes or somebody gets sick and, you know, there's these things that are suddenly big changes and we don't like the way it feels. And also we work so hard to attain the things that we have, right? You get the right job and you make a lot of money and you have the house and the car and you, you get all of these things and then, oh no, don't take it away. I got to hold on to it. I don't want anything to change. I worked so hard to get here. But again, it's another illusion that we're under. So for me, when I had my second child, I found out a few hours after he was born that he had Down syndrome. And I remember it wasn't so much the diagnosis. It was finding out just three hours after he was born. It was that feeling of like spiraling, like, oh my God, I, this wasn't how it was supposed to be. I didn't like that feeling, right? But then I realized, okay, this is life. And this is actually the only truth and the only certainty that we have, that we never know what's going to be. There's something else operating at every single moment of every day. So I decided to lean into it and to really embrace it. And now I get excited by change. Now I look for change. You know, I had a whole book tour planned for my, my new book. Then COVID-19 happened. And, and, I, and it was actually, I was supposed to go to London and it was a week or two weeks before it got really bad and everything shut down. And I just felt like it was really irresponsible to put people, because people were coming from all over Europe to come to this event. And I just thought that this doesn't feel right to me. I'm going to cancel it. And it was a hard choice because I really had a lot invested in this. But right away, I looked at my week. I was like, great. Now I, I have nothing planned. I was able to reassign the whole week, like in a matter of 30 seconds, because I've practiced this so much. And it's the most freeing thing you can ever do. It's the end of this is joy, fulfillment, happiness, because you're not reliant on anything external to fulfill you. Mm. There is so much fear at the moment. I love your book title for your first book, Fear is Not an Option. Like it really drew me in because I was like, okay, 
I need to read this book. I really wanted to read it. So I love the title. Right now with COVID-19, so many people are paralyzed by fear. They are literally like just stuck in fear. How can we overcome that and move past that? Well, I don't believe obviously in living a life of fear, right? Because when you do, you miss out on all the joys of life. You miss out on today. You miss out on the opportunities of of any given moment. So when we live a risk-averse existence, we also live a joy-averse existence. So it's really about a consciousness flip. I mean, you being scared every day of things that you cannot control, how is that going to change your reality? More than anything, I think it's just looking at it logically. By living in that state of consciousness where you're afraid, you're taking away all the joy of today, all the joys of the next day over something you have absolutely no control over. Yeah, it's crazy. And that I find is where suffering begins. You know, we're trying to like fit everything into this perfect box and we want it to look a certain way, but that controlling and that fear, that leads to suffering. So how have you supported people like you're in New York where, you know, it's really prevalent right now. So how have you kind of supported your community and and to help them move through this? So I offer them things that they, they feel like they can control. Again, it's the wrong word, but what, what do we, what can we direct today in our lives, right? You can awaken gratitude. You can awaken appreciation, kindness, creativity. You can start things that you never have before. You can make sure the people you love know you love them. You can honor that by actually listening to them, having meaningful conversations. This is a time to reset, not just for the world, but for us each individually. And I'm sure that if we look at our lives, so many of us, when you're not actually looking for change day to day, because every day I check in with myself every day. I'm very emotionally intelligent. You know, I have conversations with myself every single day, many, many times a day. And I restart the day if I need to, if it's not going in a way that feels good. Right. So most people don't do that. It's like nine to five, I'm going to work. And then, oh, I want to avoid this conversation. So I'm going to go have a drink with a different friend. Or it's all about these ways that we can avoid feeling uncomfortable. I'm saying, feel the discomfort and use it as an indication for what you really need to change. And that you want to change. You want things in your life to change, but people don't want to be uncomfortable. But a successful life is actually a life of discomfort, comfortability, meaning that you are uncomfortable, right? But that is the only way to get the life that you want. That's big. I mean, think about it. You know, people drink too much or they eat too much or they medicate too much or they just avoid at all costs to not really feel, but what's wrong with feeling? I mean, at least feel it. And then if you choose to do nothing with it today, that's okay, but at least be honest about where you're at. So what do you do? What are your tactics and strategies? Like when you feel, cause I always say you've got to feel everything and then let it wash over you like a wave. You know, it's not going to stay with you forever. Emotions are energy in motion and some feelings only last like nine seconds and then it washes over you. But it's not about suppressing. Like I used to do this. I used to suppress all of my emotions. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to feel it. Like drinking and would just put everything on top of it to avoid feeling it. And then I would explode like a volcano. And so what are some strategies for people to move through the discomfort, to move through the feeling? Like what do you do? 
Well, this is the thing, because I have a whole chapter in my new book, Rethink Love, about emotions. And there is a lot of talk about feeling your emotions and expressing how you feel. And you need to be heard and you need to set boundaries and you need to be valued. But the truth is, you got to do that for yourself first and foremost, right? So I love when people have like no self-worth and they go around and say, well, my partner doesn't respect me. Well, you got to start here, right? The thing with emotions is they are indicators. The problem is people usually take their emotions so seriously and they become the emotion. So I've known people who say, you know, I'm not about me, about themselves. I'm an angry person. I think I need anger management classes. I'm like, you're not an angry person. My experience with you is very loving and Zen. You have a problem with your oldest child and that child makes you angry. So the emotions, why are they there? They're there to teach you something and that's underlying. And we all have a designated emotion. So mine's sadness, right? I discovered that when my father lost his wealth, then when I had anorexia, then when I had Josh, sadness was the emotion that I went to when things were out of my control. But then what I realized is that I don't want to be Monica sadness. That's not who I am. That's not my identity. Instead, what was the sadness really telling me? The message behind that was I get sad when I feel like I'm not in control or I feel like I have no say in what's happening. So I realize that when I feel sad, I need to pause and say, okay, what options do I have here in this moment, in this situation? And just by looking at that, I was able to move so quickly through the emotion. And more than that, I now have a solution to what I'm feeling. So it's the same thing. So I want people to feel, but I want them to give it a window. It shouldn't be there for very long. And also look behind it. It's a designated emotion. Look behind the emotion. What is really the desire? What's the want behind the emotion? That's why our emotions are there. They're just indicators. I love that. So powerful. This is what you talk about in your second book, Rethink Love. What else is this book about? I haven't read this one. So I want to know what else is this book about? What do you teach in this one? Well, it's a really long book. There are three parts. So the first is me and that's nine chapters. That's the relationship you have with yourself. The most important relationship of all. It is the foundation. It's the fundamentals and it's the longest relationship we'll ever have in your life, if you think about it. So most people skip this step and they go straight into craving a romantic relationship because that partner is going to make them feel loved and worthy and belonging and good enough. All of that stuff actually needs to be done first. And I tell people, even in their 70s, even after they may be divorced or widowed, it's never too late. You have to go back to this first step because everything comes from here. You will not have the best relationship you can romantically or with friends or anybody if you don't first have this with yourself. The second part is going from me to we, and that's how to maintain your beliefs, your foundation, who you are while navigating the intricacies of a relationship with somebody else. Because a lot of people lose themselves in relationships because they never really knew themselves in the first place. So this is about how to really maintain you, the self, while now navigating with this new relationship. And then the third is we. And that's how to keep elevating love year after year. We'll be married 24 years in August. And I can tell you that I love him more and more each year. And that's really how it's supposed to be. And it can be. You just have to put the work in. And I always like to say this when I say work, because I think people hear it as hard work. It's not, it's work, it's effort, just like anything else. I mean, with this podcast, I'm sure you put a lot of energy into it, right? And if you have children, you put energy into having them or to growing them. For some reason with relationships, people put a lot of energy into finding the one, a lot, right? Double dating, blind dating, we get so uncomfortable to find the one, find the one. And then when we do, we're like, okay, we're married now, check. We're gonna live together side by side, and we'll go through life. But if you don't go back and check in with each other and be emotionally intelligent and make sure you're still friends, you know how many couples are not even friends anymore? 
and laughter and levity and communication and vulnerability, well, then what do you expect to happen after a few years into it? So important. I talk a lot about this in my book, Open Wide, and also on my podcast. It is so important that you water your relationship. It's like a plant. The more you water it, the more it's going to grow and flourish. And this is something like, I feel like with all relationships, each individual needs to be doing their own inner work. And then you need to do the work on your relationship together. And that's how it grows. And you both have to be willing to show up and both have to be willing to do the work. You don't just get your soulmate and then sit back and go, cool, I'm sweet. You know, I don't need to do any work anymore. Like that's where the real work happens and begins. That's like the start of the roller coaster adventure that you're about to go on that's the whole the, the marriage is the r- romance and the relationship happens after the marriage actually everything before i'm really not interested in i mean of course you need the passion and chemistry but you also need to be aligned in terms of what you believe you know kindness and what you want to do in 10 years or 20 years what's at your core and that's so much more important and i have a whole section on internal versus external. If people just choose a partner based on their five senses, mm, not enough. It has to be something far deeper. It has to be with your soul and it can't rely on the five senses. For you to be able to do that though, you have to grow those aspects of yourself that can see from that space. Mm. I talk about this in Open Wide. Like You do really have to know what your core values are, know what your beliefs are. Because if you get with someone and you haven't even done that discovery work with yourself, like you could potentially call someone in who is not aligned. And it's just, you know, there's a lot of lessons and growth in that, but, you know, might not lead you to the relationship that you truly desire. And and this is the work. Or you might have to go through many relationships to get there. Because think about it this way. If you don't know yourself in your 20s, And I'm fortunate that I started doing the work when I was 17. So we got married young, but at the time we got married, those years of anorexia really set me up for this relationship because I was so lonely. I was so hungry for love. And I knew, and I remember telling myself, you cannot enter a relationship until you give this to yourself. Whatever it is that you're craving, you have to find it for yourself first. So from that place, I was able to find my soulmate. But imagine if somebody in their 20s does not do this work and they choose a partner based on where they are, then when they're 30 and now they see things differently, maybe or their consciousness has grown a little bit, suddenly this person isn't really for them or in their 40s, well, save yourself all of that and really do the work, you know, and it's never too late. Never, never, ever too late, ever. And you're going to be continuously doing the work for the rest of your life. You know, I am so committed to my work. My husband's committed to his work. And then we do work together. We see coaches and therapists together as well when we want to move through something that might have come up. So I love that you are highlighting this. It's so important. And then when you add children to the mix or four kids like you have, it's even more work to do. It's so much growth and so much joy in it, isn't there? Absolutely. It sounds like my husband and I do our work separately and we also work together. And people who are are very connected and have a great communication and vulnerability are able to do that. But it's funny that you said about, because I have a part in my book, I give this analogy of relationships being like a farm. Because a lot of people say, you know, I'm not getting what I need in a relationship and he's not giving to me or she's not giving to me and I deserve this and that. The truth is you're not getting what you want because you're not giving it out. So imagine that you you take fruits and vegetables day in and day out from this farm and it provides for you and it nurtures you and it sustains you, but you never go back to replant seeds or to water it or to 
soil it and, and you never go back to grow anything, then there's going to be nothing left. So in relationships, we want to become an appreciator rather than a depreciator. So it's a lot of concepts like that where it's broken down, just follow this manual and you actually can have the most successful relationship that will last you your entire life. Oh, I love it. So good. I love it. So, so, so important. Thank you for sharing that. And we'll link to Rethink Love in the show notes, as well as Fear is Not an Option, which I feel like I'm going to like tattoo somewhere or put it above my computer here. Fear is not an option or just put it on my fridge or something because it's such a great mantra. It's like you've taken fear off the table. It is not an option anymore. And so now you have to find the solution, right? If it's no longer an option, then you're going to now already your brain is saying, okay, well, that's not an option. I need to find something else. A really good way to get out of the fear is to ask yourself, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? And then go do that. And I mean, maybe we're limited now because we're all sequestered to our homes, but even so there's still little ways we can chip away at fear every single day. What would I do if I wasn't afraid? I love that. I love that question. What is one thing that you're working on within yourself at the moment? Because I believe that we're always growing and evolving. What's something that you're working on with yourself today? Well, again, I'm always, always looking like, you know, do I feel good about that choice? Would I want to do it differently next time? Oh, that really worked. I'm going to do more of it. But I think still, even though I am a recovering perfectionist and I've come such a long way, still every now and again, I need to have a conversation with myself saying, you just need to do your best, give it your best, even if it's not, if it doesn't turn out to be the best thing that you've ever done, right? It's just to be able to give myself that breathing room and that space because my desire is so strong to be able to help people and inspire them. And so I always want to hit the mark, but now I do it with kindness and love before it was a very punishing conversation. So it's still, it's still my work. It's still my work. Yeah. Beautiful. If you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world, what is one book besides yours? Let's pretend they're already in the curriculum because they absolutely should be. What is one book that you would choose? I think it would be the Zohar, which is, like I said earlier, the main wisdom of Kabbalah. I think that we need spirituality in the classroom. I think that children need to feel comfortable having conversations about things that they can't see or things they don't understand, or, you know, is there a God? And if there is, what does that feel like? Or what does that look like to be able to ask questions that we all come into the world having? I don't care if you grew up in a home that was religious or not, or spiritual or not. We all come wondering, you know, how did we get here and why are we here? And if that could be brought in the classroom, I mean, we've brought that into our home in a very practical way, you know, and I see, I see how my kids feel safe in the world. And it's not because my husband and I are protecting them. It's because they're having these conversations about the bigger picture and how they fit into it. Mm, Beautiful. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. I'd love to read it. I love reading about different philosophies and spiritual thoughts. Yeah, I'm really excited to read that. I would love to hear now how your day looks. With four kids, you sound like you live a very conscious, mindful, spiritual existence. How does your day look? Do you have a morning routine? How do you set yourself up for the day? And how does your day unfold? And I know it's probably really different right now because of COVID-19, but in like a typical day for you, 
what are some of your rituals and routines? It is very thought out because it needs to be when four kids and a husband, because we make time for each other as well. We're going to have a date after this podcast because it's night here. But I wake up every morning. I get up before everybody else because I really, I don't know about you, but I really like silence first thing in the morning. Me too. I don't do well with like any conversation of any kind first thing. I just really need to like just be. So I wake up, I say a meditation prayer, and then I have that perfect cup of coffee I told you about earlier. I usually get their lunches, their breakfasts ready and look through my schedule, organize, you know, my plan. And then I work out for two hours. It's my oxygen. It's the only time, honestly, that nobody has access to me. Really. There's no phone, there's no interruptions. And it's meditative for me. I mean, for some people sitting still, they can meditate for me. When my body's in motion, the part of my brain that solves problems, critical thinking is working while my body is moving and being creative. And it's, it's my highest time of the day. What type of movement and exercise do you do? So I used to be a marathon runner. I still do run. I enjoy outside runs, but I do the Tracy Anderson method. I've been doing it for over a decade. She's a good friend. And I just love it because the first hour is dance cardio. I remember after so many years of running, my body started to, my ovaries started to pinch a little, my knees. And I thought, you know, this doesn't feel right anymore. Because when I started running, I was running for like, I was running till I didn't feel anything anymore. I started when I had the eating disorder. So I would run, run, run till I had zero desire left, not for eating, not for life, not for anything. It was like, until this numbness came over me, then I felt okay. And then when I became healthy, I was like, well, this just doesn't feel so good anymore. I mean, I still get a runner's high, but I don't need to run for 20 miles, you know, to get there. So then I started to think like, well, what did kids do when they're having fun? And I thought, well, they dance, you know? So this dancing, this freedom and really not even looking at your body, just being in it is just the funnest thing. And there's so many dances. So it's great for your brain because you're memorizing different dances nonstop. And then the second hour is muscular structure, which she changes the routine every seven days. So I always feel challenged. I'm never tired of this. Wow. That sounds amazing. Yes, I have done some Tracy Anderson. I think it's amazing, but I would like to try it again. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And nothing like for me, dancing just is the best. I used to be a professional dancer. So for me, I'm just dancing around the house and just being silly. And I'm sure you do that with your children as well. But there's something so healing and therapeutic about dance. You don't have to be a professional. You can look ridiculous. It doesn't even matter. I think it goes back to like our ancestors and I think dance, right? Even tribal dancing. I mean, this is just a way that people expressed from the beginning of time, joy, celebration, belonging, rituals, right? So it's also about getting in touch with that part of you that is not so organized or structured. It's just freedom. Definitely. I love it. If you don't do at least one song a day, I want to encourage you guys to do it because that's my rule. One song a day. At least everyone has time for one song a day. You know, most songs are like two or three minutes. So we all have time to implement that into our day. I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So what is one thing that we can do for our health? today that we can all start just one thing? You know, it, I think it's so important that people look at it this way because we can make such big deals of like, oh, you know, let's say oh, I've been smoking for 10 years. I've already done the damage, right? Or, oh, I have 50 pounds to lose. It's just too hard to start or whatever it is, right? 
But I think if you look at it this way, it's more important what you don't put in your body than what you do put in your body. Because it's so easy to say, I'm going to get this vitamin or this diet or that fad thing that's out now. Just eliminate the things that are not working for you. And you know what they are, right? And you might think that, oh my God, it's so hard. Yeah, but maybe at first, but then after you do it for a little while, the way you're going to feel and the fact that you've honored what you really desired is going to be better than anything you taste or put in your mouth. Yeah, and it becomes a habit. You know, it just takes like even a couple of days to form a new habit and stop doing those things that don't light you up, that don't feel good for you. And then all of those things that do get brought to the surface. So it's like that crowding out theory, you know? Absolutely. It actually takes 40 days for something to become a habit, but each day gets easier. And I think also, even if you just forget about gyms or, you know, machines, just go walk outside. Walking is the healthiest thing to do. There was a study done. I forgot the name of the book right now. It'll come to me. But he did a study on, it was Dr. Agus, two different men, same age, same socioeconomic status, the same diet. I mean, everything. The only difference is one was a bus driver. So he sat all day and the other one was a train conductor. So he walked all day and he compared them. And the one that sat down all day, it was as if he smoked like a pack of cigarettes a day. And he says, it doesn't matter if you exercise. So I was like, well, I work out two hours. He even wrote, it doesn't matter if you exercise for two hours a day, if you sit the rest of the day. We are meant to be moving all the time. Again, think back to ancestral times, right? We are hunters, gatherers. We didn't sit behind a desk and a computer. So I'm just saying, pick one thing that we just spoke about and just start tomorrow. Yeah. I try and walk an hour a day. That's that's my thing. Like at least one hour, like a minimum one hour. And it's so important. And usually I do it along the beach or there's a beautiful nature track near our house through a park, but right now that's closed. So the beach is still open here. So I've just been doing walks along the beach for an hour and it is the best thing ever. It is the best. It's so healing. My feet are on the sand. I've got the sun on my skin. Like it is just so healing. And then I can dive in the ocean. It's beautiful. I totally agree with you. A lot of people say an hour a day or 10,000 steps, whatever you can do, because we are, we are sitting more than ever. And it is not good for us. It's not good for our lower backs, for our hips. But even inflammation in the body which is a big thing. And, and that's the, they're finding even with COVID-19 and flus, everything, it's not so much the virus, it's the inflammation that occurs in the body. So I just think, you know, become informed, just get information. I, again, I always tell people this, get information. And if you're so scared, do nothing with it right away. Just get the information and then start small each day. I love that. Beautiful. What's one thing that we can do for our wealth? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Well, it's interesting because I find if you look at behavior, I find people who, for instance, are very into the instant gratification, right? They see sneakers they want, they have to buy it. They see something and they buy it. And then at the end, they don't have the money left to buy the house that they really want or the car that they want because it's all about making themselves feel better in the moment, which again is an effect. But if you look at the root, I really think that people aren't able to access wealth that might be at their fingertips simply because they don't believe that they should have it, that it's not the right time or they're not smart enough or they haven't worked hard enough. Some people have belief systems that it has to be really painful and worked really hard to get it. And that's the only way they'll be successful. Change the way you think about money and change the way you think your experience with money should be. And not just money, wealth in every area, wealth in in health and relationships and friendship. Yeah. I love that. So true. And look at the stories that you're telling yourself about money, about wealth. 
Right. And a lot of it, I bet you stems from childhood and what you saw your parents experience with that. Definitely. Great advice. Thank you. And what is one thing we can do for more love in our life? So I think the core and the fuel of any relationship is friendship. I think if I could say one thing to everybody to do in this moment is to look at their most important relationships, their most significant ones, and look to see where they are friends. When they have an issue, is that person the one that they go to or do they go to a girlfriend or a buddy instead? Do they say kind things to each other? Do they go back and repair arguments that they had? Do they put the desires of the others before their own? And if the answer to those questions are no, then I think it's a really good indication that, you know, I never understood this. I don't know how people stay married for 20 years or 15 years, and then they don't really like each other anymore. It seems like a real waste of time to me. I know it's crazy. I have a friend who was in a marriage and she's got a couple of kids and she told me these were her words. She stayed 17 years too long. And I was like, 17 years. Like, that's a long time. That's a really long time. And she, she knew, she knew, but she didn't have the confidence and the self-love and the worthiness to leave. And, you know, I feel, I feel for those people that I've done it in past relationships. I have definitely done it. I have stayed way longer than what was true for me because I didn't feel worthy. I didn't have the self-love. And if that's you, I really want you to dig deep and go back to what we were talking about before. It's like the most important relationship is the relationship with yourself. Like that's where we need to nurture and to tend to. That's what we need to look at first. Because if we have a beautiful relationship with ourselves, first and foremost, then everything else is going to flow a lot more easily. Completely. I always say I'd rather the pain of discipline than the pain of regret. And even though what you just said requires discipline, it's so worthwhile because at 17 years, I'm sure your friend felt regret. And if she hasn't found her way yet, she's probably still feeling that. So look after yourself, nourish your relationship with yourself, get Rethink Love, get my book, Open Wide. It's my whole first section. It's broken up into three sections as well. And the whole first section is about self-love because that is the most important relationship of all. So we're on the same page. Seems like it. Well, let's get a first book and we'll compare notes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Now, Monica, this has been amazing. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything you wanted to talk about that I didn't get to ask you? No, I can keep talking about everything and anything. I think that I would just tell your listeners that no matter where you're at or what you want to be kind to yourself, because from kindness, that's where all healing occurs in every area, in relationships, in finances, in spirituality, in terms of your emotions. and that there's no experience, however bad it may have been, or even good ones that you look back and want to recreate. There's nothing that can define you. You can define whatever you want. You derive purpose and meaning from life based on how you see it. And one of my favorite things to leave people with is that this is your life and you alone are responsible for the quality of it. So if you don't love what you do, don't do it. If you love what you do, do more of it. And if you don't know what you love, it's time to find out. Oh, yeah. I got full goosebumps. Oh, such a beautiful way to end. I have one more question for you, my darling. You are of service to so many people. The work that you do, the books, everything that you put out there, 
is serving and helping people and it's one of your big missions. So I want to know what I can do and the listeners can do to serve you. How can we give back to you? That's such a nice question. I would just say, pay it forward. You know, next time there's an opportunity where somebody comes and speaks ill of somebody else or gossips or judges, don't participate, you know, just give benefit of the doubt, really, because I feel like that is what will make the world better. And if I look back to any hurt I've ever experienced, it was always that, just being misunderstood. At the end of the day, we're all doing our best and we're all works in progress. Nobody has arrived yet and we won't until we die. So let's stop fighting each other. Nobody's the enemy, really. We're just all in the same struggle, trying to drive purpose and meaning from our experiences. Like you said, we are all doing the very best we can in each moment. And we've got to be kind and have compassion for ourselves and for others. So true. So thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom, for your books, for your work, for everything that you do. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you and hearing your wisdom. So thank you so much, Monica. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. Wow. Wasn't that amazing? Such an inspiration. I really hope that this hit home for a lot of you. And if it did, please subscribe and leave me a review on iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading what you guys get from each show. And for everything that Monica and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. That's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 315. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there is someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, my darling, Don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.